0: we would find ourselves at the end, but here we are. This uh, pandemic, in reflection, has tested our unity, tested our loyalty, even tested our faith. The epistle of James tells us to consider all joy when you meet such trials, knowing that they are perfecting us, that they are making us complete, that they are producing in our character what is needed. And removing what is unnecessary. Now, even though the letter of the Philippians was written to the Philippians as a response to a letter that Paul received because they were so concerned about the trials that he was facing, the church itself is actually facing its own trials. Paul noted in the first chapter that it had been granted to you, he wrote that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. So they are suffering. They are suffering persecution. They are suffering all kinds of things. And the external trials that are coming upon the church are creating internal trials inside the church. As you read through the letter, you find that the church is struggling with fear. The church is struggling and wrestling with fear its own conceit and selfishness in its members. The church is grumbling over obedience. The church is listening to false teachers. The church is dwelling too much on earthly things. And we read the church is divided. Paul not only writes to comfort, but he tells this Roman church to remember their heavenly citizenship, to not forget their true homeland. And so our text this morning reminds us that this doesn't just happen. That we actually have to resolve and choose to make it so. And so for the last sermon of the year, we always or typically talk about resolutions. And if you know anything about a man named Jonathan Edwards, you know that in December 1722, a long time ago, Before Jonathan Edwards was the great theologian, this young Edwards wrote out 70 resolutions in hopes of experiencing the fullness of life in Christ. And as you read through them, some concerned really interpersonal relationships, uh, some concerned how he was going to endeavor to eat and drink, Uh, others focused on his spiritual and devotional life. And there were others that were concerned with how he used his time on earth wisely. The kinds of things that you would find on a lot of lists if you happen to make resolutions. But his list did contain a few unique items. One of these concerned suffering and affliction. Perhaps this would help us as we reflect on 2020 and enter 2021. He wrote this, resolved after afflictions to inquire what I am the better for them and what good I have got by them. He was resolved. This is what I was going to do as he anticipated future afflictions that would invariably come. This is likely the resolution we should have all made at the beginning of 2020. But in the beginning of this fourth chapter in his letter to the Philippians, I think Paul gives us similar resolutions. Five resolutions, actually. They always, or really, center on one altogether. And they probably should be actually five individual sermons, but because we're going to do it this way, we're going to combine them. Let's take a look at Philippians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. And we'll read through verse 9. Anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Five resolutions. Now, one of the strongest themes in Paul's letter is unity. And as he brings really this letter to a close with some really practical lessons, it feels like, the first thing he calls The Philippian church to do is to choose agreement in the Lord. Now, this is a letter that's most likely read publicly. And in this public letter, out loud, he names two women in the church who are in conflict. They are both known personally by Paul. And these women likely helped Paul plant the Philippian church. They were part of the core team. Some kind of disagreement has risen up between these two ladies, and it's troubling enough that Paul has to respond to it. It's been reported to him that there's trouble between these two ladies in the church. It is disrupting the whole church. Now in response, Paul doesn't call them just to uniformity. He doesn't call them necessarily to to be the same. He calls them to unity in the Lord. He doesn't address the content of the dispute. He doesn't evaluate the merits of one opinion over the other. We have no idea what they were arguing about. Instead, he chooses to emphasize what they share. How they've worked together for the gospel. Likely this has been over five years of time. The fact that they have their names written in the book of life they're both believers they're both christians he doesn't call them to look outward he doesn't even call them to necessarily look inward he says i want you guys to look upward now i've found it maybe you would agree with me nearly impossible to be in unity with those who choose to spend most of their time focused on areas of disagreement. It's really hard. It requires that person to look well beyond any places of agreement to dismiss any kind of history or shared relationship you might have with one another. And in doing so, that person who says, I'm just going to focus on how we're different and how we disagree They remain in what I would describe as a perpetual place of criticism. Where they can only appreciate the people who perfectly align with their perspectives and their preferences. Very hard to be in relationship with this kind of person. This only fosters division and it ends up, as I said, making relationship really hard. Now, Paul doesn't call these two people just get along, get over it, stop fighting. He could have said any of those things. But he urges these two friends to humbly prioritize their shared identity in Christ over and above their shared similarity in life, which they have a difference of some kind. Now, choosing agreement for anybody is really difficult because it requires for us to be humble. And if there's anything that's the most difficult thing for sin, sinful people to be, is humble. And depending on the issue, whatever it happens to be, and we can very be very passionate about very small and very big things, but whatever the issue is that we happen to disagree with someone about, it can often feel like, ah, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I want to be humble because I, I'm not being true to myself if I overlook this issue or I compromise this issue. I would humbly suggest that no one expects you to deny or hide your true self. But the fact remains, it is nearly impossible to pursue self-interest and to uphold the interests of others at the same time. What that means is choosing agreement is going to require some level of self-denial. And what do we mean by self-denial? Well, I don't believe that means losing ourselves as much as it means accepting the selves of others. In other words, where they don't have to be you in order to be with you. That's hard. It's easy to be around people who are exactly like us, who believe the same things in the small and the big things. But it requires self-denial humility to be with someone who is not like you. In other words, we're going to have to accept that we are going to be in relationship, in community, with people, guess what, who don't enjoy what you enjoy. Who don't always feel the way you feel about what you feel about. They don't think the way you think. They don't vote the way you vote. They don't decide the way you decide. And you have a choice in that matter. You can separate. You can say, this is too hard, like, like, we since we don't agree in here or there, we'll just separate. Or, sometimes worse, is I'm going to remain and just be annoyed perpetually with this person. I don't think either one of those are good options. And sadly, I've seen a lot of that over 2020. Over the last nine months, I've watched brothers and sisters quarrel and even separate over what seemed like Pretty silly disagreements, pretty small disagreements. Perhaps as we go into 2021, because there'll be other things to disagree about, we could maybe not follow the way of the world, the way of homogeneity, where everything's got to be the same, and perhaps choose the way of Christ and the way of unity. And by that, cleverly stated, where we, we, doesn't just have to include only me and just people like me. There's a beautiful unity in the diversity of the body of Christ. And, but it has to be chosen, which leads us into our second point. That kind of choice can feel like it's going to rob us of joy. And by that I mean, I think most of our conflicts with people and, and, you know, in circumstances are rooted in trying to find joy, our supreme joy, in a place or a preference or a person. Basically in the wrong place, preference, or person. Paul tells us something that's difficult. He basically says, you're going to have to choose joy. Here's what he says in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Semicolon, which means that's just a statement. He's going to add some more information to help you understand that. It's like, rejoice in the Lord always. That's a command. Oh, you're commanding me how to feel now. Is he? Well, let's see. Again, I will say, rejoice. Says it twice. Anticipating the pushback. He says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. So, if you're like me, you read that and you go, how can anyone rejoice always? That, that seems, you don't know my life. You, that seems otherworldly, not human. I would humbly suggest that Christians typically are not characterized as being joyful which is kind of weird. And by weird, I mean one of the most commonly ignored attributes of God in the Old Testament particular is joy. The Old Testament speaks a lot about the joy of the Lord, the delight of the Lord, the pleasure of the Lord, the joy of the Lord. It speaks often about it. Arguably, Jesus was the most joyful person who ever walked the face of the earth. And we know that part of his mission as the Messiah was actually to bring joy. One of the purposes of salvation is actually everlasting, overwhelming, immeasurable joy. And yet Christians are not typically characterized as joyful and maybe would be on the top ten list, but not the top five or three. But knowing how joyful God is, and knowing that salvation is supposed to bring joy, shouldn't this choice be easy? But it's hard to choose joy. And I would argue it's hard to choose joy because we perpetually, continually look for joy in the wrong place. Now, there is joy to be found in earthly things. There is a joy that, even the writer Ecclesiastes, like there's some joy to be found on earth, and and that is good. But eventually, every earthly thing there is doesn't satisfy with joy. Kids, enough said, right? Marriage, job, money, pleasure... There's some joy to be found in those things, but eventually they run their course or have their moments. It's impossible to feel joyful about all those things all the time. It's impossible. The word rejoice is a verb, like run. So if you're commanded to run, you know what that means. And it's a choice. I can run. If it's an ugly run, that's fine. If it's a slow run, whatever. But I know what running looks like. What if we consider rejoice and joy as a verb? Like rejoice. There's a choice to be made. He commands us to rejoice and to do so always. Saying it twice. Because He knows people are like, no way! Because when we're unhappy... We think it's impossible to decide by an act of the will to just change our feelings. We tend to think of joy as something quite passive. It just happens. I either just experience joy or I don't. It's something to have no control over. It's totally involuntary. That's not how Paul teaches it. But I would argue that choosing joy has less to do with choosing how we feel and more to do with choosing how we focus, which impacts how we feel. We're not told to choose to feel joyful. We're told to choose joy in the Lord. Now, without question, as I said, there's lots of joy to be found Joy in life, joy in people, joy in family, joy in food, joy in drink, joy in romance, joy in hobbies. Lots of things to find joy in. But Christians are called to find joy in Christ, not only, but supremely. Supremely. The heavenly citizen doesn't look outward or even inward to find their supreme joy. They actually look heavenward. Choosing joy means more than choosing to see the good despite the bad. It is, in some sense, spiritual optimism. And by that I mean there's lots of things that can be lost in this world, but there's something, namely the love of Jesus Christ, that can't ever be lost even in death. So there's a spiritual optimism. Jesus is always on His throne. So when things go bad, you're like, I can rejoice because I know someone's in control. But, think of it this way, it's not just choosing the good despite the bad. I would argue that choosing joy in the Lord means it's also a bit of spiritual pessimism. And by that I mean, whatever good we experience doesn't compare with the good yet to come. Every good that we go like, but that's nothing. I call that spiritual pessimism, where you keep things in their place so that those joys that we do experience in life, we go, yeah, but that's nothing. That's nothing. Always keeping our joy supremely, but not only in the Lord. I love what C.S. Lewis wrote. He says, all joy reminds. All joy reminds. It is never a possession, always a desire for something longer ago or further away or still about to be. Choosing joy in the Lord is always looking for what is yet to come. And in that, we can always rejoice. Choosing joy in the Lord helps us, especially when we lose joy in other things, because we will. But we can never lose the joy of a salvation. It always remains. It never changes. I can rejoice always because I am always Jesus' beloved. And nothing can separate me from his love. So I think that many of our disagreements about circumstances and people and all these things are rooted in a misplaced joy. This is what Paul tells us. We've got to choose But he continues in verses 6 and 7 connecting it again to show us how fear can tend to threaten our joy. He says in verse 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God in the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Anxiety is a um, pandemic of its own. It plagues a lot of people. I would dare say it plagues us all at some level. I believe our anxiety about just about anything is rooted in anticipation of loss. Anticipation of loss or anticipation of of absence, losing out on joy. Fear of losing security, losing vitality, losing prosperity, losing opportunity. Any number of things can rob us of joy, the fear of that loss. Paul does not promote some kind of escapism where we pretend our anxieties away through distraction. On the contrary, He doesn't invite us to dismiss what we feel. But to give voice to those fears. To give voice to those fears. If you're a guy, you have a tendency, I would say, to probably stuff those fears. Here we give permission to voice them. Now, we don't have a problem doing that in today's world. We don't have a problem giving voice to our anxieties. In fact, I would say no one struggles. That fear fills the feeds. Where many people spend much of their time today on the internet, you see that feeds are full of fear. We don't have trouble giving voice to our fears. It's like I've often called modern-day chicken littles where people post fears about everything for the world to see. Invited, post what you fear. What do you feel right now? And typically, it's anxiety about this or that. Fear of elections, fear of government, fear of communist takeover, fear of vaccines, fear of masks, fear of movements, fear of indoctrination, fear of evangelical duplicity, fake news, false Christians, fraudulent leaders, freaky churches. Fear everywhere. And that doesn't even begin to account for the stress that we feel or experience over our health, over our kids, over our jobs, over our finances, our relationships, any number of things. It's everywhere. The Bible doesn't call us to deny these anxieties. They're real. Whether they're reasonable or not is a totally other discussion. But the feelings are real. We're not called to dwell on them and to post them and let people like it and comment and say, oh, sorry you feel that way. We're actually called to direct them not towards people but to God. To give them voice to the Lord. We're to choose to give our fears and again, rest in the Lord. She's agree in the Lord. Choose joy in the Lord. Give your anxieties to God and rest in the Lord. And our prayers should begin, he says, with thanksgiving. Well, why? Well, if most anxieties are rooted in fear of loss or absence, what better antidote than to celebrate and to focus on the things that God has given you? To dwell on the gifts that you do have. Right now, it's a silly saying, but it's so true. Gratitude does impact attitude. It does, mysteriously. It's no wonder that when Paul's talking about anxieties, he strangely goes, Oh, by the way, be really thankful, because it impacts how we perceive everything. Like a loving father, though, God desires for us to come to Him and to share our hearts even if we forget to be grateful. He still wants us to express and to share how we're feeling. The Apostle Peter commands us to cast our anxieties upon God. Why? Because He cares for you. He doesn't bother Him. He is the perfect Father. Anxiety you know what it should trigger? An invitation to deeper relationship with God. This is a prayer that really, as you have these fears, you're longing for God. And and this kinds of prayer is not primarily about the requests, and it's not primarily about changing the circumstances that are causing anxiety. In fact, it's actually about being intimate and united with God. Prayer is an invitation to name what you genuinely fear, to declare what you genuinely desire, so that you might be governed by what Paul describes as a peace that just doesn't make sense. A peace that doesn't make sense. And it's a peace that comes, honestly, in the midst of storm, just being held by dad. There might very well be lots of things to be freaking out about. But guess what? When dad's holding you, there's peace. There's peace. Prayer doesn't fix the problem as much as just fill us with his presence. Our fears are not quelled because... God changes our circumstances as much as our hearts are calmed because God enters our circumstances. But I would argue it's really hard to do that in the midst of the storm. And by that I mean this. In Psalm 32, I've always been struck by something David prayed. He said, Let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you, speaking to God, at a time when you may be found. You go, what? And then he says, surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. I would say in order to experience the peace of God that he promises through prayer, we need to anticipate our anxiety before it comes. Before we're overwhelmed by the waves. You realize that Jesus... Went often out into desolate places to be intimate with God, to be alone with God, to commune with God. And he typically did that when things were going well, not when they were going poorly. It doesn't mean he didn't pray when things were difficult. We have the Garden of Gethsemane telling me that. But he went off to desolate places when it was already calm and quiet, that he might be calmed in advance, I would argue. Corey Ten Boom once said that if the devil can't make you sin, he'll make you busy. There's a lot of truth in that. I think both sin and busyness tend to have the same effect on us. They cut off our connection to God, to other people, and even our own soul. Choosing prayer, you know what that actually means? If you're going to go into 2021, as practical as it sounds, it means choosing slower. It means choosing smaller. It means choosing quieter and simpler. That you might be with God more. And the anxiety level might go lower. But that's not all he says. He continues, because how our joy is filled, how our joy is filled, or how our fears are fed, is dependent upon where you choose to set your mind. Paul writes in verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Here's a great question for you. It's not mine. I can't remember where I heard it. What kidnaps your attention most? I mean, grabs it without you having to think about it. It just takes your attention. I have often heard it said that attention is the beginning of devotion. That the mind is a portal to the soul. And whatever you fill your mind with is going to shape the trajectory of your character. We live in a world more... Full of stuff to think about than any generation before us we have more things more easily accessible to distract us than any other generation before us Blaise Pascal wrote that distraction is the only thing that consoles us for miseries and yet it is itself the greatest of our miseries with all that we can fill our minds with, and there's a lot, Paul simply says this, and I think our generation needs to hear it more than any other. You need to make a choice about where you set your mind. And it has to be very intentional about what you choose to dwell on. I would argue that we need to become cerebral minimalists. Cerebral minimalists. And what I mean is setting our mind on a few things above instead of all the myriad of things below that you could. Setting your mind. Paul gives us a pretty comprehensive list. But it really amounts to two different kinds of thinking. That which is true and that which is false or lies. That which is honorable and that which is dishonorable. That which is just or unjust. Pure versus impure. Lovely versus unpleasant. Commendable versus lamentable. Excellent versus insignificant. Worthy of praise versus unworthy to even mention. I'm always struck by how many things that people in conversations can quote from movies, from books even from podcasts and pastors, and yet not from the Word of God as much. What kinds of things are found today on the 24-7 news cycle? Think about all the outrage and the emotionally charged feeds and the never-ending flow of just cultural blah, blah. It's arguable that most of that stuff is best describe as fake, foolish, and fading. And yet, we consume it. We think about these things because, honestly, we never think about what we think about. Paul tells us to dwell on that which is true and honorable and just and pure and lovely and commendable and excellent and praiseworthy. And this is not about ignoring sorrow or dismissing wickedness through the power of positive thinking. On the contrary, it's about choosing the lens through which you will see life. Choosing where we dwell means choosing where we won't dwell. Because simply we become what we give our attention to. In other words, it's not about necessarily what you do. It's not about what is right or what is good. It's primarily about who or what you want to be. Because attention leads and is the beginning of devotion. And it does affect us all. So Paul says, direct your mind. Otherwise, you will easily be distracted onto such insignificant and even deplorable things. We'll conclude with his final verse and his final resolution, which is pretty straightforward. Verse 9 Something I could probably read at the end of every sermon. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. He calls the Philippians to action. I find it interesting that he has to do that. Maybe not. See, the worst thing about resolutions in January is they're typically forgotten by February. And I can stand up here and preach, choose unity, choose joy, choose prayer, choose where you set your mind. And people say, amen, and amen, and amen. And they go home and do nothing for 11 months. Choosing to practice means choosing one of the hardest things it is to choose, especially for men. For women as well. It's choosing to resist passivity. To resist passivity, which is right there. So much easier to be passive. So much easier just to think about it and not actually act. To this point, the first sermon I preached in 2020 was from the Minor Prophet series called the Twelve. I had to look back and see what it was. The first Sunday of 2020, I preached the entire book of Micah. I'm sure everyone remembers it fondly. I had to read it and go, oh, that's what I preached. The entire prophecy of Micah is a condemnation on the people of God who quite simply know better because they were told better. Their sin was not what they had done, but actually what they hadn't done. And so in calling them to repentance, actually Micah doesn't tell them anything new. It reminds them of what God already said, and very famously, the kind of key verse out of it is Micah 6 8. He has told you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. Like, it's not a mystery. Do justice and love kindness and walk humbly with your God. God has not changed. In fact in many ways these are the same things that Paul is commanding the Philippians in this whole letter it's like no different choose to walk with the Lord we must practice choosing unity in the Lord we must practice choosing joy in the Lord we must practice choosing rest in the Lord we must practice setting our minds in the Lord why Practice doesn't make perfect, it makes permanent. You can get very good at doing the wrong things, so you have to practice the right ones. And there's a promise in these choices. Practice these things, and the peace of God will be. No. God will be with you. God himself will be with you, not just his peace. His peace certainly comes with him. But Paul says there's a promise in practicing these things and that is that God is with you. These things are not optional if you want to be close to the Lord. Refusal to pursue these things is refusing to walk humbly with God as you pridefully act as if life is found elsewhere. But as Paul says, if. If, in Colossians 3, you have been raised with Christ. If you have been raised with Christ. So I call it to you Christians. Just then seek the things that are above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above. Not on the things that are on earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ and God. In verse 4, And when Christ who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Is Christ your life? Does that describe you? Does that describe your past year of 2020? Is, was it Jesus who kept you close to others in the division of 2020? Has Jesus been your joy in the darkness of 2020? Has Jesus been your peace in what amounts to the death of 2020? Has the person of Jesus and the things of Christ dominated your mind and your mouth in 2020? If not, then I would argue that Jesus has not been your life for 2020 and you have a choice for 2021. Choosing differently for 2021 might feel impossible if You've made a lot of other choices the other direction. I get it. So I'll close with how Jonathan Edwards started all of his resolutions. Because it's hard to change what we've practiced. And Edwards knew this well. He said this at the very beginning Be insensible that I'm unable to do anything without God's help. I do humbly treat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for christ's sake let that be our prayer i'm not saying it's easy to do any of these things but maybe if we pray for not just the ability but the desire to do these things 2021 look differently for us all